Well, this morning we are in Matthew chapter 4. I've got to preach quickly. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I feel like there's about three sermons worth of material I, got, I, I, I have to cover in one sermon. And, and I'll give a caveat. Melanie says this is helpful. My first point is my longest point, okay? So we're going to move through this quickly, but there's going to be a moment where you're like, he is still on point one, okay? And I just need you to know that it's my longest point. So don't despair. Don't despair. We're, we're going to spend a while in point one, then we'll move to two and three quickly, okay? In his book, Recapturing the Wonder, author Mike Cosper tells the story of finding himself at a dedication service for a megachurch and their $80 million facility. And at one point in the service, he says that the choir began to sing this special. And, and the song, as it vamped and grew progressively louder and more epic, he said that Subtly at first, and then increasingly so, this massive cross on the back wall of the church began to glow. And as the song continued, the glow grew brighter. And as they crescendoed to the end, he said the cross was glowing so bright that it was almost hard to stare directly at it. And later that night at dinner, he said uh, his dad looked at him and asked, the cross, did, did you see that? What did you think? Do you think it was real? And of course, Cosper was caught off by this, and he said, what do you mean real? Like, do you mean it was a miracle? And then Cosper says this. He says, at the time, Dad's question seemed so odd, so out of character. But this isn't about my dad. It's about me. It's about how I stumbled upon my own disenchantment because what surprised me in retrospect was not that dad raised the possibility of a miracle in a modern industrial megachurch service. It was the utter impossibility of such a thing in my mind. It was stranger to want to read a miracle into a stage effect. He says, is it stranger to want to read a miracle into a stage effect? Or to be a Christian whose gut-level reaction is, that's ridiculous. I think my guess is most of us would react like Cosper. There, there are rational reasons for being cynical about that particular miracle. But here's the point. It didn't take any thought or reasoning from Cosper, and likely for you and me, to be skeptical. It was your immediate instinct, your gut reaction. It was immediately impossible for it to be supernatural. And the word that Cosper uses for this is disenchantment. It's a word that he's stealing from philosopher Charles Taylor. And, and disenchantment is this uh, deeply ingrained and fully formed attitude toward the world that is suspicious of any kind of religious experience. A disenchanted world is a world that's been drained of its magic, stripped of any supernatural presence or transcendence. A, a disenchanted world is a material world. What you see is what you get. And friends, this is our default setting. We are programmed to expect that the world is, is only what we can touch and see and smell and measure, and that any thought or idea that runs against that expectation is met with resistance. 
we naturally react to the suggestion of a miracle, or for that matter, any thoughts about God, the spiritual, the transcendent, with skepticism and with cynicism. We're, we're natural-born cynics. It's the world we're born into. Now, what's the point? Well, we find ourselves in a text this morning that challenges those impulses. In Matthew 4, we enter into a world of angels and demons. We are told after his baptism that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. In fact, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this story. It's an important story. And it's presented two ways to us. Number one, it's presumed and presented as an historical event. Now, admittedly, there's lots that we don't know from this episode that maybe leave us wondering. Did Satan manifest physically like he did in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3? Or was it merely a prompting? Was, was, he, was Jesus being provoked through an, through an inner voice? We don't know. When it says that Jesus was taken to the pinnacle of the temple, did that literally happen or or was that a vision? There are all kinds of questions, things that we don't know. But what the gospel writers insist on is that Jesus really entered into a Judean wilderness and he really encountered a devil. According to a recent Gallup poll, only 58% of Americans believe there's a real devil. Those numbers continue to drop. But one of the unavoidable realities of the Bible is that it insists that there's more to the world than subatomic particles and chemical reactions. It insists that there is a spiritual realm, that there is a heavenly host, that there's a real God and a real adversary and a cosmic battle that is being waged. Jesus went into the wilderness to face the devil. His testing was real, and it was significant. And this leads into the second way it's presented to us, not only as an historical event, but also as a deeply theological event. The way that Matthew is telling his Jesus story, Jesus has now entered into the story that's been being told since Genesis. We've now come full circle. At the beginning of the Bible, there's a test that takes place. Adam was tempted in a garden, and his failure turns the world into a wilderness. And now Jesus comes as a second Adam, and he enters into that wilderness to take us back to a garden. He comes to re-enter the testing ground in order to reverse the curse. Or think about the people of Israel who, after passing through the waters of the Red Sea, enter a wilderness of testing for 40 years. And now here is Jesus after passing through the waters of his baptism. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tested. Jesus is stepping into the redemptive storyline. He's stepping into the story that's being told from Genesis now to Jesus. And he steps into our story too. Like Adam and like the nation of Israel, you and I often find ourselves in a wilderness of testing. But what this narrative means is that God doesn't leave us to fight alone. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was tested and tried in every way as we are, 
yet without sin. The temptations that he was hit with are are temptations that are core to human desire. And yet Jesus stood victoriously in the face of that temptation as he trusted in his father. And so what this story is going to teach us is how the enemy aims to tempt us. And then it's going to show us the promises that Jesus anchored himself upon in the face of that temptation. And then finally, ultimately, it's going to reveal to us what his triumph means for us and how it leads us to victory. So we'll notice three things. We'll notice the temptations we face, and that's the long point, so just stick with me, okay? The truths we need to embrace, and then finally the triumph that is ours. So first, the temptations we face. On the surface, the temptations that Jesus are hit with might seem odd, Turn some stones into bread. Leap from the pinnacle of the temple. Bow down and worship the devil. What in the world, right? I don't know about you, but first read, I'm like, I don't identify with any of that. But beneath the surface, what Jesus is being provoked with is to provide for himself, to secure himself, and to exalt himself. Or stated differently, Jesus is being tempted to doubt God's faithfulness, to doubt God's justice, and to doubt God's goodness. And so are we. And so are we. When when we read that the devil said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Tell these stones to become bread. We think of bread as a commodity. We think, of going, we think of going to a restaurant and hoping that they have some sort of bread that they offer as a free appetizer, right? That's what we think of when we think bread. A pastry from a coffee shop, an appetizer before the meal. But Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days. He was literally on the brink of death. He was so starved, he might have been hallucinating by this point. Bread was the thing his body was telling him that he needed most. It was sustenance. It was life. I wonder what that thing is right now that you want more than anything. That you're craving. That you're desperate for. That your instincts are longing for. I wonder... If you could speak that thing into existence right now, would you? That's the temptation that the devil hits Jesus with. He's targeting Jesus' weakness. Notice how he initiates. If you are the son of God, or it could translate since you are the son of God, Remember, recall last week, Brett preached the the baptism of Jesus. Jesus, when he entered into the water, we're told the heavens were rent open and and a a dove-like figure descended upon Jesus and a voice from heaven spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now the devil wants to call that into question. In essence, he's saying, hey, where's your dad? I thought he loved you. I thought you were his beloved son. I thought he was well pleased with you. But here you are, all alone, 
starving to death. Jesus, you're going to have to take care of yourself. Russell Moore explains what Satan prompted Jesus to do was to provide for himself, to feed himself. It was the pull to consumption, to self-provision. If Jesus had used the Spirit to turn the bread into stones, he would have been rejecting the Father's provision, rejecting the Father's promise, turning instead to his stomach at the command of Satan. So maybe we wonder, is there anything wrong with making yourself something to eat? By itself, no. In fact, later in Jesus' ministry, he, he'll take a few barley biscuits and sardines and he, he's going to feed a large crowd with it. He's going to perform a very similar miracle to what he's being tempted to in this moment. But in this moment, the temptation, as Alan Ross puts it, was to satisfy his material need without reference to finding the will of God. Hunger was not wrong. But Jesus shows us it is better to be hungry than to be fed without any reference or recourse to the will of God. See, the essence of sonship is obedience to the Father. And Jesus would not, therefore, act independently of the will of the Father. He knew that the Spirit had led him into this place that necessitated hunger, and so he would fulfill that task. In other words, Jesus chose submission and trust over cravings. Hunger is a natural appetite. It wasn't wrong to be hungry, just like it's not wrong to desire love or security or intimacy. But to seek to satisfy those things outside the Father's will is the essence of what Satan was provoking Jesus with. This voice speaks loudly in our culture today. We are told explicitly that we are defined by our appetites. We are defined by our desires. We are defined by our sexual inclinations. Marketing firms and ad agencies and algorithms target our cravings. And the voice of the enemy tells us that we have every right to indulge to satisfy our desires, to provide for ourselves because God is holding out on us. But in the face of that temptation, Jesus knew that the end result of self-provision isn't satisfaction but separation from God. Frederick Buechner once said, lust is the craving for salt of a person who is dying of thirst. You think it will satisfy, it will only compile the thirst. Your carnal desires are not to be trusted over against the word of God. Jesus reminds us that you do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, you are not defined by your appetites. You are defined by who God says you are. Your appetites are real. They don't define you. In fact, your appetites were created by God, which means they are innately good, 
when they don't succumb to your fallen nature. They're actually pointing to a deep spiritual reality. They're designed by God to take you into a deeper relationship with him. That hunger for food was created by God to make you long for him like that. Because he's the one that can truly satisfy you. He is the richest affair, Isaiah says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist declares. Your sexual longings, they're designed by God to point you to the intimate love and fulfillment of Jesus. All of your appetites, your desires, need to be put in their proper place. They're not wrong when they're submitted to God. They're just not ultimate. They're means to a greater end. They're pointers to heaven. As C.S. Lewis so aptly put it, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. What your appetites are telling you is that you were made for another world. You were made for God. And see, you can either let your desires preach to you or overpower you. Will you listen to the voice of the enemy or will you listen to the voice of God? We are invited to trust in God's faithfulness. He's not going to leave us in the desert. Whatever you're starving for right now, don't turn rocks into bread. You don't have to provide for yourself. Jesus heard the voice of the Father over the grumbling in his stomach, and he wouldn't question the Father's faithfulness even though he was starving. To lose control of your appetites, writes Russell Moore, is to, is to lose sight of the gospel itself, the truth that God knows what you need to survive. He is faithful. You don't have to provide for yourself. Nor do you have to secure yourself. The second temptation is to secure ourselves. It's, it's to justify ourselves. This might seem strange to us at first glance, kind of like the first temptation. The devil takes Jesus to the holy city and has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. We don't know if this is literal or figurative, but he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and he says to him, hey, if you're the son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What's the temptation going on here? This is a real struggle after all, right? This is a real test. I don't know about you, but I've never been tempted to climb to the top of a church building and jump down to see if angels would catch me. So what's going on here? I think like the first temptation, we have to look beneath the surface. The, the devil quotes Psalm 91 in this temptation. It's almost as a retort to Jesus using scripture, right? He's like, oh, you want to throw some scripture out? I'll throw some scripture out. You're not the only one who knows God's word. By the way, we learn something, don't we, of the enemy's tactics here. Just because there's a scripture verse slapped on it doesn't mean it's true. We better learn to listen for the voice of God. The enemy will use God's very words to tempt us. Psalm 91 is a psalm about God's protection. 
The psalmist, in a place of fear, is reassured that the one who lives under the protection of the, of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. That if you hide yourself in God, you're truly secure. God will protect his anointed. He will secure his chosen one. So imagine Jesus in this wilderness, in this setting of absolute vulnerability. Verse 10 of this psalm says, No harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent. And here is Jesus, 40 days without food, among the wild animals. This psalm maybe didn't seem so true. Here's Jesus in this deserted place. He's fatigued. And the devil says, hey, didn't God say no harm will come to you? Didn't he say no plague is going to enter your tent? Didn't he also say that, if, that he'll command his angels concerning you? Hey, why don't you throw yourself down from here and see if it's really true? Why don't you you see if God meant what he said? Aren't you his anointed? See, if the first temptation was attacking Jesus' hunger, the, the second temptation was to attack his faith. Do you really trust the Father? Do you really believe that what he says is true? Then make him prove it. If you jump, you're a real believer. The temptation here is to put God on trial, to make him prove that he's real and that he'll do what he says he'll do. And church, we are tempted to do this in a million different ways. Maybe you've been tempted before to fleece God, to say, God, if you're real, God, if it's true, then do this. You're going to have to prove yourself to me. Maybe you're tempted to think that what you need is a certain feeling. Oh, I lived through years of this as a child. Believing that the security of my salvation was predicated upon a feeling. God, I just want to feel it. Or maybe you've said it a little differently. God, would you give me a sign? Would you do a miracle? Would you make it clear? The reality is this is the story of Israel in the wilderness. God had provided for them time and time again. First by releasing them from the tyranny of Pharaoh through the parting of the Red Sea. By providing manna in the wilderness. (laughs) He literally invented bread that showed up every morning. And when they get to Massa, they begin to grumble. They begin to forget the Lord's faithfulness and his provision. And they begin to gripe and to complain. Did God bring us out in the wilderness to die? It was better back in Egypt where at least we knew we had food. We're dying of thirst out here, Moses. Do something. And they begin to demand a sign. They begin to beg Moses to to do something to prove whether or not the Lord was among them. Another sign after they had seen so many. Their unbelief was talking. 
They didn't trust God's word. They wanted to see something. They wanted to feel something. They wanted to have assurance. And so they put God on trial. And Jesus harkens back to this event when he quotes Deuteronomy and he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's talking about Meribah. He's talking about Massa. He's taking us back to the story of Israel in the wilderness. And he's saying, I'm not playing that game. Testing God in the wilderness led an entire generation to miss the promised land. Because they doubted God, they never entered his rest. The rest, the peace of heart that you long for will never come by putting God on trial. It will only come by trusting The promise of Psalm 91 is not a life without trouble. It's a God present in times of trouble. Faith is believing God's promises on the basis of his word, not on the basis of a sign or a miracle or a proof. We tend to want God to show up in a big way. We tend to want an airtight argument. We tend to want something dramatic. But God gives us his word and he gives us his spirit. The Apostle Paul would later write and he would say, Greeks demand wisdom and Jews demand sign. But what he offered was the gospel, which he says is the wisdom and the power of God. The voice of Satan weaponizes God's word against our faith, but Jesus shows us the way forward. He wasn't going to be like Israel. He wasn't going to try to force God's hand. He was going to build his life on God's promises and trust in God's heart. Well, finally, the devil stops with the subtleties, and he just goes for the gusto. The third temptation isn't couched in spiritual language. The devil doesn't quote scripture. It's just a blatant invitation to immediate gratification. Finally, after tempting Jesus to prove himself and to secure himself, he says, why don't you just exalt yourself? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you'll just fall down and worship me. There's something mystical happening here. There's no high mountain in Israel where you can see from a high vantage point the kingdoms of the world. And so what's happening here, it seems, is the devil is giving Jesus a vision of glory. And he says, I'll give it all to you immediately. If you'll but bow down and worship me. Now, the, the irony here is that Jesus created those kingdoms. And that whatever authority Satan has had been given to him by the Father, and it was temporary. Jesus knew from Psalm 2 that God had promised his Messiah the ends of the earth as an inheritance. The kingdoms were already his. But what the devil is tempting Jesus with here is immediacy. Instant gratification. Or to put it differently, what the devil is saying to Jesus is, you can have the kingdoms without the cross. Jesus, I can help you avoid the cross and still have the world. Oh, isn't that our temptation? David Crowder gets it right when he says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will reveal to his disciples that it is necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things and to be handed over and killed 
and raised again on the third day. And when Peter hears Jesus say that, do you remember what he says? Oh no, Lord. I like the King James. Far be it from you, Lord. That will never happen, Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Jesus tells Peter that in this moment, he's talking like the devil. I think he's hearkening back to the temptations in the wilderness. Peter wanted a king, but he didn't want a king headed to a cross. And that's what we tend to want. We want a kingdom without a cross, which is why Jesus would go on to tell his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Jesus understands that. He was faced with that. I can save my life in this moment, but if I do, I lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Resurrection comes via Calvary. Jesus had to go to the cross to make eternal life possible. He had to go to the cross to open up the kingdom for us. And if he takes the devil up on his offer and bows down, he forfeits the kingdom assured to him by his father and he leaves us in the dark. This would have been the equivalent of Esau trading in his birthright for some porridge. We are constantly bombarded with the temptation to have our best life now. To eat, to drink, and to be merry. To indulge and to gratify. To have heaven in the here and now. To trade our birthright for some stew. And we need to hear the voice of Jesus. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world? And loses his soul. Or what can anyone give in exchange for his soul? He invites us to stake our claim in the kingdom of God. In the promise of an inheritance that right now is being kept in heaven for us. That is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. The kingdom is coming. It's just future. It's here it's here in Jesus. We get a taste of it now. And we get the consummation of it with Christ in the new creation. C.S. Lewis once wrote that if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Jesus kept his mind on heaven. He didn't lose sight of his calling, of his mission, of us. Thank God. 
Well, let's quickly consider not only the temptations we face, but the truths we embrace. I promise two and three are quick. As we find ourselves in the wilderness, what are things that help us to stand firm against the enemy? Let me just point out three things quickly. A a promise, a prayer, and a pattern. I think it's really key that wilderness comes immediately after baptism. Jesus knew the Father had affirmed him. He knew his belovedness. He was secure in his identity. And that anchored him when the voice of the tempter came. He was secure in the Father's love. He knew that he was a beloved son. And listen to me. Listen to me. What the Father spoke over Jesus, he speaks over you if your life is hidden in Christ. What is true of Jesus is true of you through union with Christ. Which means the Father speaks over you. You are my beloved son and I am well pleased with you. I love you. You're secure in my love. Don't forget who you are. You are tempted to forget your identity. That you're already loved. You're already chosen. Know the promise of your belovedness. Secondly, I think Jesus gives us a prayer. It's been pointed out that the Lord's prayer is actually a foil to the temptations of the enemy. In the wilderness. Think about it. Turn these stones to become bread. What does Jesus teach us to pray? Give us today our daily bread. He would later teach that even human fathers, Jesus calls us evil fathers, sinful he means. When their son asks for a loaf of bread, doesn't give him a stone. How much more does your heavenly father delight to give good gifts to those who ask? So ask and seek and knock. Give us today our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to pray for God to provide and to trust him to do so. Or think about the temptation to cast yourself from the pinnacle. In other words, to secure yourself through forcing God's hand. Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. Bow down and I'll give you the kingdom's of the world versus your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For every temptation, Jesus gives us a model prayer. I think we neglect this, especially in our tradition a lot. You know, some traditions recite the Lord's Prayer weekly. It's more of their spiritual centering. I think this is something we would do well to take up. Not just something we recite before an athletic event or something that we just just mindlessly say. It's a model for how to pray. Jesus is showing us how to approach the Father. And in that, he's teaching us how to fight the enemy. So we need to learn to pray like Jesus. We need to hold on to the promises like Jesus. And thirdly, I think we need to pattern ourselves after Jesus. Did you pay attention to how Jesus contended with the enemy. He kept quoting the book of Deuteronomy. 
He, he kept coming back to the Bible again and again and again. Jesus wasn't proof texting, by the way. He wasn't just slapping a verse on it. Jesus was entering into the storyline of the Bible. And he was saying, I know where this leads. And I know who God is and who he's shown himself to be through his word. And I know the promises and I'm going to anchor myself there. He rooted himself in what God had said. He, he battled lies with truth because he knew the voice of God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? So much of life, so much of life, or the trials of life rather, the troubles of life, is that we listen to the voice in our head. We, we listen to the voice of the tempter. We listen to the flesh, and we need to learn to speak the word of God. And to be able to do that, we have to immerse ourselves in it. We need to bleed Bible. Jesus endured the wilderness because he knew who he was and he knew what God had spoken and he secured himself in that through an abiding relationship. And the same can be true of you and me. But here's the best news of all about this story. We're landing the plane. The good news of this passage is not simply that Jesus shows us a way to fight the devil. The good news of this story is that he already did and he won. He doesn't simply show us the way. He is the way. That would have been a good time for an amen. Just saying. Jesus has passed the test, church. He's won the victory. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Israel, which means that by faith in him, we stand in his place of victory. His story becomes our story. And here's what this means. This is the best news of all. It means that even when you fall into temptation, when you walk out of these doors and you succumb, it means that even then, you've already ultimately been delivered from the evil one. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. One with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And knowing this is actually how you fight. You don't fight the battle by girding up your loins and white-knuckling it against the devil. You fight by looking to Jesus. We don't just model ourselves after him. We cling to him. We trust in him. And we know that because he conquered, we can conquer too. The same spirit that anointed Jesus comes to fill you and me. What did John the Baptist testify a few weeks ago? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. To empower you to say no to the devil's bread and choose to be fathered and not fed. Let's pray.